Do you want to be truly free? That's really the question that's run behind what Paul said for about three chapters in Corinthians. And what he's going to say, if you really want to be free, the last verse of our passage today says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Being truly free isn't just doing as you fancy. Paul says, be like me as I try and show you what it's like to be like Jesus. And I want to just consider the question of freedom, because Paul, freedom and rights and these kind of things, Paul's been addressing all the way through the last uh, three chapters. You see, most people think freedom is something like this. It's a little bit cheesy, but you see where I'm, what I'm getting at. Is this not how people think of being free? But in fact, being a human being, really, it's this, isn't it? To be truly human, many people think, is being you without anyone's permission. It's a bit pukey. But that's kind of how people think, is it? Being you without anyone's permission. I want to decide what's right. I want to decide how I'm going to live my life. How I'm going to love. How I'm going to think. And I don't want anyone else's permission. As long as I'm maybe not hurting people. Don't you hear that? As long as you're not hurting people. Freedom and, and, a, and a truly fulfilling life is being you without anyone's permission. Certainly without needing God's permission. And the problem is, if people think like that, it actually makes it very hard even to contemplate following Jesus, doesn't it? If you think to be truly free is to do what I want and think what I want and be a kind of free spirit without needing anyone's permission, what about when the Bible says we need to follow Jesus? We need to be like Jesus. What's right? Well, what would Jesus do? As those bracelets used to put it. What's important? Well, what does Jesus say is important? What is good? Well, what's Jesus like? Freedom is not being you without anyone's permission. It's being what you were made to be, which is like Jesus. Quite different. But so often that's how people think. And the Corinthians... I got a bit mixed up about freedom. If you have, keep a finger in our page, flick back to chapter 6. What we find, the Corinthians, and we looked at this when we, when we were studying chapter 8, but it, very relevant again this evening. The Corinthians thought that Jesus had set them free, pretty much to do whatever they wanted. At the start of chapter 6, they've clearly written to Paul, and he's kind of quoting back to them. I have the right to do anything, you say, we translate it, because this is probably what they've written to Paul in their letter. But Paul says, well, well, okay, Jesus does set you free, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything, says Paul. In other words, I don't want to be the slave of anything other than Jesus. And in, verse, in chapter 10, in our passage today, that I read earlier, the same thing comes back in our passage today. Verse 23, Paul's quoting them again. I have the right to do anything. You say, a sort of half-truth, because Jesus does set us free. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. So there's this question of freedom. And two particularly horrendous things that the Corinthians thought they were free to do. Back in, again, if you flick into chapter 6, verse 12, 
the bit we were just looking at. Um, let's pick up. After Paul said, well, hang on, don't use your freedom. You don't have the right to just do as you please. He immediately asked them this question, verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. You see, at Aphrodite's temple, that's a picture of Aphrodite's temple above Corinth, they reckoned there were over a thousand temple prostitutes working. And it was almost a good night out for people to go up to the temple and take part in immorality. Men and women... Husbands and wives were not simply faithful to one another, loving one another. They were going up to the temple and having many lovers and being unfaithful. And the Corinthians, many in the church in Corinth, thought because Jesus set them free, they could go and take part in in immorality. And in in chapter 8, we looked at this when I preached last time, they thought they were free to take part, again, up at Aphrodite's temple, the goddess of love. They thought... They were free to take part in the feasts. And you can see why they wanted to. That's where everyone went, up to the temple. That's where you made business contacts. That's where your friends went. That was part of the culture, to go up to that temple and take part in these feasts. But unfortunately, they were worshipping idols when they went there. doesn't sound good, does it? Idols, sacrificing to idols. And again, but they thought they were free and they were arguing with Paul that it was fine and they were free to do it. And Paul's been dealing with that through chapter 8 and chapter 9 and chapter 10. And we come to the conclusion of that today. So they thought freedom meant pretty much like people today. They could do as they pleased. Again, I showed you this quote last time. I think it's worth learning. A.W. Tozer is always good for a good quote. Christian liberty, Christian freedom, the freedom that Jesus died to give us, is not freedom, sorry, is freedom from sin, not freedom to sin. See the difference? We're saved from our sin by Jesus on the cross. We're saved from the power that sin has over our lives to make us its slaves. We're saved from Satan, but we're not saved to sin. We're saved from it. It's freedom from sin, not freedom to sin. So important. You children growing up, there are going to be a lot of temptations to do all sorts of kind of crazy things. Well, Jesus hasn't set you free if you're trusting in him just to go and do as you please and do the wacky things the world does. He set you free to be like him. Freedom from sin. Can anyone tell me what's going on in the picture? It's a little bit small. Can anyone tell me what's going on in the picture? Put your hand up if you think you know. What are the people doing? Any grown-ups? Lydia? There is some eating going on, but that's not the main thing. Anyone any idea? Well, I'll tell you. Yeah. It's a Roman slave market. A slave market where people would be brought in, their owners would bring them in because they wanted to maybe get rid of them, sell them, raise some cash, and they would be tied up. These people looking miserable at the back, including, including a small child, as slaves being sold. The man stuffing his face, I don't think he's a slave. 
I think he's a slave owner with money. Slaves would be brought in and sold. This was going on all the time. Quite a big portion of, proportion of people in the Roman Empire were actually slaves. This is a slave market. And the Bible uses the image of slavery a lot. But in the slave market, you couldn't go free. Your master would bring you in and you would be bought. And then another master would take you away. Very occasionally, a wealthy relative or someone might redeem you. They'd pay the price. And they would, set you, they would take you away. They would own you, but then they could set you free. And Jesus, I love to picture Jesus coming into the slave market. We were all slaves. We were enslaved. We were chained up because sin had taken over our lives. We've all sinned. And the Bible says if we sin, we become slaves to sin. We have sin in our hearts. But Jesus came into the slave market. And Jesus puts down big bag of cash. More cash than you'd need to set everyone free in there. It's not really cash, is it? What's Jesus paid with? Any of the children know? Jesus didn't pay with money to set the slaves free. Anything? Sure, Dex? His life. Yeah. The bag would have been bloodstained, wouldn't it? Jesus came in with a big bag of cash and puts it down. Who wants to be free? And everyone in this slave market who wants to be free, Jesus sets free. But he sets, what he says though is, come and follow me. Be my followers. Be my slaves if you like. Be set free from the sin and all the the horrible things you say to him. Come and follow me. Jesus sets us free that we can be his followers, his slaves. But actually, Jesus said, didn't he? Take up my yoke because it's, Easy, my burden is light. It's not, it's not a burden to follow Jesus. It's a joy. It's lovely to know him and follow him. But that's what's going on. We're not free. When Jesus sets us free, it doesn't, it's not free to do as we want. It's not that we have no master. It's that we have a new master. Do you see that? We were slaves in the slave marketplace. Jesus comes in and he buys us off the old master, sin, the devil, so that who do we belong to then? Who do we belong to then, Tilly? God. If God buys us, then God owns us. We're his. And that's really what it means to be free as a Christian. We're no longer trying to please ourselves. We're not even trying to please God by our good works. Because Jesus sets us free from that too. Paul says in the quotes I've got there from Romans 7. We died to the law through Jesus, through his body, that we might belong to another. Jesus sets us free from all kinds of slavery, slavery to sin, slavery to the law, slavery to trying to get to God by being good. But he sets us free, not to do as, us, as we please, but to belong to him, that we might bear fruit to God. Now here's a question. Do you know what truth in the Bible is repeated, repeatedly in a passage of the scripture? I think it's this one anyway, more than any other truth in the Bible. You probably don't know. It's this. Why did the Lord save his people from being Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. Does anyone know the answer to this before I, I show you? Six verses in the Bible that give you the same answer to this question. Why did the Lord save his people from being Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt? Anyone know? Why did God do it? Karen? Because he loved them? He did love them, but he was more than that. He wanted something, to, something for them. Does anyone know? Nathan? You probably don't, but it's quite... You know? <laughs> Six times this appears... Moses is sent by God to tell Pharaoh this message. Chapter 7, verse 16 of Exodus. This is the message Pharaoh's given. Let my people go, set them free, so that they may 
worship me. And it happens again. Chapter 8, verse 1, there's, there's a plague or two. Moses goes back in with the same message. Let my people go so that they may worship me. Verse 20, there's more plagues, frogs and darkness and blood. And I can't remember the order, but um, verse 20, let my people go, Pharaoh is told, so that they may worship me. These are direct quotes. Chapter 9, verse 1 is the same. Let my people go so they may worship me. Pharaoh keeps hearing this message. And again, chapter 9, verse 13, let my people go, set the slaves free so that they may worship me. And finally, let my people go so that they may worship me me why did God set his people free from slavery in Egypt to worship him so they could be his people they could enjoy being with him they could sing his praise and they could love him as their God the God who set them free is that not a very repeated truth in the Bible Pharaoh had to be told Pharaoh didn't believe it that's the problem he had to be told it six times God sets his people free so they can worship him Remember that. Jesus sets you free from your sin so you can please yourself. No. So you can worship him. Worship him. And we've been, as we've looked through chapters 8, 9 and 10, we've been learning. Paul's been teaching us why we shouldn't just do as we please. Why we shouldn't, if we're Corinthians, just feel we can go up to Aphrodite's temple and go with the thousand temple prostitutes working up there. That's not good. Why we shouldn't go up to Aphrodite's temple and take part in the feasts to false gods. That's not good. Not good at all. That's what was going on. Why not? Just, why aren't we just free to do those things? And Paul gives a few reasons. Now, I'm not going to do this at length because we've had six sermons on these. We just, the reason I have to go through is that my passage today in verse 14 of chapter 10 starts with a therefore. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. doesn't make much sense if we don't realise what Paul's been saying. So just quickly, let's go through. Why not just do as we please? Paul has been telling us. Firstly, chapter 8, verses 9 and 10. Because what we do affects other Christians. Look at uh, chapter 8, verses uh, 8 and 9. Sorry, 9 and 10. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights, your freedom, what you choose to do, if you follow Jesus, does not become a stumbling block to the weak, at least to other Christians. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, that's what they were doing, will they not be emboldened to eat what's been sacrificed to idols? In other words, what you do affects other Christians. If you sin, other Christians might copy you and think it's okay. Or even if they know it's not okay, they might think, Anna May's doing it, or Dav's doing it, so it must be okay, even though it's wrong. So what you do affects other Christians. That's what I preached on last time. And then Paul continues, because of Jesus' example, don't just do as you please, don't sin, don't use your freedom badly. Because of Jesus' example, carrying on in, in, in that verse, look at verse 11. Paul says, if you do bad things and lead other Christians astray. Look what happens. He says, this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. Jesus died to make people holy and therefore we need to follow Jesus' example. Not doing things that are going to lead them astray and lead them into sin, but do things that are going to help other Christians be holy because that's Jesus' example. Jesus gave up everything, didn't he? What did Jesus give up so that we could be holy? Holy. Everything, his life, yeah, didn't he? 
And so Paul wants us to see Jesus' example, who cared for, for the Christians, or all those who were going to become Christians, gave up everything for them. So be like Jesus. Don't, remember people look at you, number one. Number two, be like Jesus, who laid down his life to help other people to be holy. Number three, Paul's been reminding us about his own example. Flick on, if you will, to chapter, 11, so chapter 9, verse 11. 11, I'll read down to verse 15. Paul's basically showing us that he hasn't been um, claiming what, he was, what his rights were. He was entitled to get money from the Corinthians because he was kind of serving as their pastor there and they weren't paying him anything. Look what he says. But he didn't take money off them because it was better for the gospel that he gave them the gospel free. Look what, he, look what he says. If we've sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much that we reap a material harvest from you? He was pastoring them, wasn't he? Is it too much that you help me materially? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? Paul had planted the church and cared for them for years. But we did not use this right. Verse 12. On the contrary, we put with anything rather than hinder the gospel. So Paul is saying, even though I was entitled to stuff, even though it was okay for me to have that money from you, I didn't want it. Why? it was better for the gospel we don't know exactly the circumstances but it was better for the gospel for Paul to offer it free of charge so that's what he did he, he was entitled to something but he didn't have it he went without it to serve his brothers and sisters so that's a good example isn't it don't just do as you please don't just do, do whatever you're free to do do what helps your brothers and sisters and we have another example of Paul how he used his freedoms flick on to verse 19 Paul says, though I am free and belong to no one, I've made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law. Though I myself am not under the law. So as to win those under the law. And he goes on to different groups of people. Paul says, look, I've given you an example here. I didn't just do what I fancied doing. I didn't do what suited me. If I was with Jewish people who lived a certain way, I did what suited them so I could tell them about Jesus. If I'm with pagan Greek people who were very different, well, I found how to get alongside them and, and get to know them and be with them. And with whoever I'm with, whoever I'm serving, I didn't do what I fancied. I did what was good to help me tell them about Jesus. Think about your friends, children, grown-ups. Your colleagues, your neighbours. How can we get alongside people in a way that helps us to share Jesus with them? That's what Paul's saying. That's what we should be using our freedom for. We're free to do what? Do as we want? No, free to find ways of telling people about Jesus. That's really what he's saying. That's another example from Paul. And because of the prize at the end, this is my favourite one. Flick on to verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games, thinking of the Olympics and games like that, there were games at Corinth. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last. But we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, verse 27, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Paul says, don't just do as you please. Live for Jesus because of the prize. 
What's the prize? Well, in a sense, the prize is being in heaven with Jesus, isn't it? That's, that's a pretty special prize. But for Paul, there was a bigger prize even than that. Dad reminded us. Paul often said, what, what's Paul tell us? His joy and his crown on that day. What's Paul's crown going to be? He says, it's not just that I'm going to be there with Jesus. It's that you people I've been preaching to, you're going to be there too. My, all the things I've given up. All the service. All the things we've been, we've been reading about. Paul said to the Philippians and to others, you are my crown on the day of Christ Jesus. He's imagining running over that finishing line, not on his own and just Jesus being there, but running to Jesus and looking around his brothers and sisters whom he served, whom he's given up everything for, then getting to heaven too. And that being his reward. Almost, that's almost like his offer to G, offering to Jesus. Look, the Lord Jesus, he can say, I brought you these. Thank you that you saved me. That's his joy in his crown. Paul is motivated looking to the finish line, looking to heaven. He's going to be there with Jesus. And all those he served, or many of them, all those who've believed, are going to be there too. And that just spurs him on to the prize. What an amazing motivation. So Paul's been saying, don't just live as you please. Live as Jesus' servant. Do what's good for the gospel. And then finally, we've had perhaps a trickier a negative. If all of these are positive, and they're all really positive, we also had a warning. The passage I read earlier, and that Psalm 95, that we began our meeting with, also calls us back to, reminds us what happened to all or most of those who came out of Egypt but didn't make it to the promised land. Because many of them, well, they were unbelieving, they were unfaithful. They knew God's discipline. Some of them even knew God's judgment. They, they, they didn't make it. And let me just read these verses. Just as I read them again, let's remind ourselves. I think Dad reminded us. Let's remind ourselves again. How many people left Egypt, you know, when God rescued his people out of Egypt? How many? Approximately? Anyone? About two million. Two million. Two million. Okay? And how many people... I don't have to move my hand for this one. How many people made it to the promised land? Two. Joshua and Caleb. Only Joshua and Caleb, certainly of all the men who were alive, only Joshua and Caleb got all the way. Many of them fell under judgment. Some of them, like Moses, although they were true believers, knew God's discipline because of things that had had gone on that were not good. But ultimately, Paul's saying, just take that as an example. Look what he says. Two million people left Egypt. Two get to the promised land. Let me just read you these verses again. I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and they all passed through the sea. They were all baptised into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So they all, the two million, they all came out. Yeah. There was a sacrifice. What was the sacrifice called the night they came out of Egypt? Do you remember? Lydia? Now that's where they're going. What was the sacrifice? On the night they came out, there was a big sacrifice. Karen? Passover. Do you remember the blood of the lamb? The blood of the lamb. God worked in incredible salvation. He saved his people through the blood of the lamb. They were delivered. They were rescued. They were brought out. And what was the first thing they were to do? To go through the Red Sea? What does Paul say? It's like a baptism. Doesn't he? Look what he says. They all came out. They all, because of that amazing blood sacrifice, they all came out on Exodus night. They were all baptised into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food 
and drank the same spiritual drink from. They drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. So they came out. There was the sacrifice. There was the rescue. They came through a kind of baptism into the wilderness. And God fed them day by day with manna. A bit like we have the Lord's Supper regularly. God fed them. They came out, rescued, once for all, baptism. And then they were fed all the way to, maybe you'll get this one right because you've already told me the answer, all the way to the promised land. That's where they were going. And that makes us think of heaven. That's our promised land, isn't it? Where we'll be with Jesus forever. But look what Paul says. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them and their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. These things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things. In other words, don't go and do the sin, don't do the idolatry that the Corinthians are doing. Do not be idolaters, verse 7, as some of them were. As it's written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. Bosh! A couple of million... We just got down 23,000. Kept, they kept dropping and dropping and dropping as they did really bad sins. We should not test Christ as some of them did. And they were killed by snakes. Bosh! More of them fell. Do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us. On whom the culmination of the ages has come or the fulfilment. You see, what happened to them when Jesus went, because it was really Jesus working through Moses, and Paul says that, doesn't he? When Jesus went to save his people, when he appeared in the bush to Moses, he commissioned Moses, he appears to Joshua just afterwards, doesn't he, as the commander of the Lord's army. Jesus is there saving his people. Jesus is saving a, saving a people. But it's a picture of an even more amazing saving that Jesus does, isn't it? When he saves us from our sins. By going to the cross. We are those on whom the fulfilment. What's the word Paul uses? Lost my place. Uh, the culmination of the ages. That means like the fulfilment. That rescue points to another rescue. And Paul's saying. In other words. If Jesus led people out. Did all that amazing stuff. And yet they didn't believe. And many of them were lost in the desert. How can you think, Corinthians? You see, there must have been some of the Corinthians who just weren't listening to Paul. He's given all these positive reasons. And he has to turn it up a bit now, doesn't he? They must have just not been listening to him. How can you think you can carry on doing idolatry and immorality and drunkenness and wickedness and all the things he's been talking about in his letter and somehow that Jesus will say that's okay? Because he won't. He won't. If you are his children and you're getting involved in this stuff, you're going you're gonna to know his discipline. And perhaps some of you aren't even his children. If you're just not going to listen to me, if you're just not going to listen to Jesus, you need to be careful. God's discipline, God's judgment are serious. That's what's been going on. And then the conclusion, verse 14, Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. After all that we just looked through, Paul says, get away from the sin. Now, we might not be tempted to go up to a temple on a hill. There isn't a temple on a hill up above Bracknell. There isn't funny sacrifices and temple prostitutes and stuff. But there is temptation to sin, isn't there? Can we not be tempted to worship things instead of Jesus and love things in Jesus' place? To not want to live with Jesus as our Lord? Paul's, the warning's the same. If we won't live as Jesus as our Lord, I say this to you young people as well as to the older people, is Jesus your Lord? Are you following and obeying him? Have you repented 
of your sin and you're really following it, you're really living for Jesus. Otherwise, the same warning applies, doesn't it? Get away from your idolatry. Get away from the things that you love that get in the way. And love Jesus and give yourself wholly to Jesus. That's Paul's conclusion. And he continues then with some more reasons. This is going to focus a little bit more on these this evening, but we'll just skip Skip through these. First of all, look at verses 15 to 18, if you have a Bible in front of you. Verses 15 to 18. Paul's telling them why they should flee idolatry. Get away from this stuff. And the first reason he tells them is because idol feasts are as real as the Lord's Supper. Let me say that again. Idol feasts are as real as the Lord's Supper. Look what he says. He says, I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. And this is what he's saying. This is what he thinks is sensible. He says this. He says, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper like we do here... Is not the cup of thanksgiving or the cup of blessing for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? In other words, when we do it, is it real or is it fake? Are we really worshipping together? Are we really participating together as a body, as a people? We are, aren't we? We're one body, we're one people. It's a real thing. It's just a bit of bread and just a bit of juice. But is it real? Yes. Does it mean something? Yes. Is it deep? Yes. Well, how can you go up to the temple and do the same stuff? Does it mean something? Yes. Is it a real experience? Are you really participating in that religion? Yes. If the Lord's Supper is real, what are you doing going and drinking the cup of idols? Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks, our table, a participation in the blood of Christ? Yes, it is. Next question. Is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Yes, it is. And in case we didn't get it, he says, verse 17, because there is one loaf, we are who are many are one body. Because we all share the one loaf. It's real. We are the body of Christ. It's wonderful to be together as the body of Christ. And take communion together. Communion. Sometimes I, we, know, we, we have to take communion with our eyes shut. I sometimes wonder whether that's a good thing, whether we should do it with our eyes open and look at one another. So we do together, isn't it? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. If that's true, what on earth are you doing in the idol temple? Makes no sense, does it? Should they have been in the idols' temples, eating that stuff? What do you think, children? No. Should they have been drinking the cup in the idols' temple? No, because it's real worship. Then Paul gives another example. He goes back to the Old Testament Again, to the people when they were brought out of Egypt to be God's people. It says, consider the people of Israel. To not those who eat the sacrifices, participate in the altar. I think he's referring to a couple of things. Leviticus, I won't read it for time, but Leviticus 7. In Leviticus 7, we read about the fellowship offering. It's really interesting. When you brought a fellowship offering, the animal was sacrificed. The fat part was given to the Lord. It was burned on his altar. Some of it, certain portions of the meat and so on were for the priest. And the rest of the meat was for the family. You took it home and you ate it. And it was called a fellowship offering because it was like you were having a meal with the Lord. That was the idea. The priest was helping you. It was a fellowship offering. It was real. Those who, who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar. You were a part of what was going on in the temple because you took part. You took your sacrifice and then you took some of the meat away and you ate it. So all those who ate, and this is Leviticus 7 has a whole chapter explaining this, 
All those who participated in the altar also ate the food. So eating the food, was a, it was a real thing. It was how you came close. It was part of the worship to eat. And what Paul's really saying is, what on earth are you doing going and eating this kind of religious, idolatrous way? Eating is a real thing. You know, we come close to the Lord through eating. They did in the Old Testament. We do at the Lord's Supper. Just be careful. And the Passover itself, we've already thought of Passover, haven't we? At the Passover, every year the Jews remembered that first escape from Egypt every year. What happened? They took a lamb. Every family took a lamb to the temple. That's what God commanded. It was killed by who? The priest. Yeah. It was sacrificed in the temple. But who ate it? The families. You took it home. You ate it in your home. So often we find this in the Old Testament that what goes on in the temple, all God's people were able to participate in somewhere because they ate the food. They were involved in eating the sacrifice. So what Paul's saying is eating and taking part is a big deal. You can't go up and take part. And if they haven't got the point from there, he ratchets it up even further. So he's, he's now established the idol, you know, these idol sacrifice things, services they were going to, were as real as the Lord's Supper in terms of being a spiritual thing. And now he tells you something. If they're real, this, this is very scary. He says, these idol feasts come from Satan and his demons. And actually Satan and the demons are the ones who are being worshipped here. Look what he says, verse 19. Do I mean that food sacrificed to an idol is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, of course not. Aphrodite is a fake god. Aphrodite is not real, yeah? But who stands behind Aphrodite? Satan, or one of his demons, working for Satan. The demons are just angels working for Satan, aren't they? That's what demons are. Who stands behind Aphrodite? The devil. Look what he says. No, But the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not God. I do not want you to be participants in demons. Aphrodite, that was a demon. The devil wanted people worshipping there. Every false religion is written by a demon or two. You know, who inspired, be slightly careful with the recording, who inspired Muhammad to write the Quran? A demon, Paul says. That's what he's saying, isn't it? Who inspired Joseph Smith to write the Book of Mormon? Who? We don't know which one. One of the demons. That's what he's saying. Demons are involved in false religion. Not the Holy Spirit who gives us God's word. Everything else is fake. Comes from demons. Don't get involved in it. That's what he's saying. Do you see that? So it's real and it's demonic. Get away from that temple. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord. You cannot, he says, verse 21, drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot have a part in the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? The Lord knows it's real. What is going on in the world, in Aphrodite's temple, in wherever sin is taking place, is rebellion against him and worship of of Satan. Get away from it. Get away from that temple. Get away from it. Get away from idolatry. Do you see how seriously Paul is taking their sin? Just don't get involved is what he's saying. You belong to Jesus. You are holy unto the Lord. Jesus has brought you with his blood. You just can't be getting involved in sin and wickedness and all the things in the world that are wrong. You've just got to get away from it flee from idols and for us what are our idols might not be Aphrodite but the things we worship 
that get in the way. The things we do, I don't know what that is for you. Are the things in your routine that mean you just don't find time for Jesus? Are the things you do that lead you away from Jesus? Are the things you watch or read? Or do you have friends or colleagues who perhaps lead you away from Jesus? Just be careful. You've got to get away from things that lead you away from Jesus, haven't you? And serve him. That's what Paul's saying. For them, it was Aphrodite's temple. For us, it'll be something different. Really, just take it seriously. We belong to the Lord. Look how seriously Paul lays this out for the Corinthians. Are we trying to allow, are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Do we want to make Jesus jealous? He's bought us, we're his. And if we're loving other things, it makes him jealous. Because we're his. Do you want to do that? Want to do that? No. No. Then Paul has a change of tack. So then, do the Corinthians all need to be vegetarians? If, if Aphrodite's temple is so evil, what about even the meat you buy in the shops? That might have come from the temple. You see, in those days, you probably can't imagine this, children, but we've never lived in, in, in the days of the temple. Often the meat you bought on the meat stalls came, it was killed often in the temple. And you couldn't always tell where the meat had come from. And Paul's answering the question, really, there were probably some in the church who felt you've got to be a vegetarian, otherwise you don't know where the meat's coming from. That's the sort of thing that was going on. In Romans, Paul talks about the same thing. But he says, no, 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 we don't need to worry about where the meat's come from. As long as you're not worshipping idols and taking part in, in, in what they're doing, don't worry about the meat. Look what he says. Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. So Paul's come down very hard on idolatry, hasn't he? Taking it very seriously. But that's because it's a very serious sin. We're talking about now something, buying food in the marketplace. Paul says, it's okay. It's okay. Your your consciences don't need to be troubled about this. It's okay. You don't need to raise questions. You don't need to worry about this. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. That's why, interestingly, that verse, that's why the Jews like to, what we call say grace, say prayers at meals. And they had a really interesting view. I think, I think it's quite nice, actually, for you children. Who made the world? God did. Who owns everything in the world? God did. God does. So when you eat something, you're eating something that belongs to who? God. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And the Jews therefore felt, because of Psalm 24 verse 1, you should always pray when you're in. Because you were kind of taking something off God that belonged to him and eating it. So at least thank him for it. It's quite an interesting thought. That's why we say grace when we, when we eat very often as believers. It's because of Psalm 24 verse 1. It belongs to Jesus. He's given it to you. It was his. So thank him for it. Anyway, let's move on. Um, Paul then says, he's talking about freedom. <coughs> You don't need to worry about where the food's come from. As long as you're not taking part in the idolatry, you don't need to worry about the meat. Verse 27, he says, If an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, go, he's saying. Eat whatever's put in front of you without raising questions. Well, most likely there were people in Corinth who were judging one another for going and having meals with people because of this. Paul's saying, no, you don't need to worry about that. You don't need to worry about that. If someone invites you to come to tea, even in Corinth where the food might have come from, a, from an idol's temple. It's okay. Go. Because the earth is the Lord's. The food, all the animals, everything are the Lord's. Go and eat with thankfulness. 
But then he says this, verse 28. If someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, don't eat it. Both for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. I'm referring to the other person's conscience, not yours. Something like this, children, must have gone on. You went to your friend's house. Your friend wasn't a Christian in Corinth. He invited you for a meal and the meat's being served. And maybe there's also vegetables and there was gold. Maybe there's bread as well or something. And your friend serving you the meat says, Oh, well, you're a Christian, aren't you? Oh, this is idol meat. Are you going to eat that? Or saying, actually, in that circumstance, it might be better to say, I'll just have the bread, thanks. I'll just have the vegetables. Not because there's anything wrong with that meat. Just because that friend's going to be confused, aren't they? Much clearer to have that clear witness. There are many Christians who don't drink alcohol when they're with non-Christians. Not because there's anything wrong with drinking alcohol necessarily. Maybe they have a beer quietly when they're at home. But because... If it's in a situation where people are getting drunk or non-Christians maybe wouldn't understand what you do, sometimes it's easier just to not do it. It's the same Paul saying, if it's going to confuse people or it's going to be a stumbling block, don't do it for the sake of their conscience. It's, it's just an example of, again, of using our freedom well, isn't it? It's not a rule. It's an, an example of freedom. You're free to go, but equally, if, if in going something is a stumbling block, you're free again to say, okay, maybe just vegetables, maybe just bread. Use your freedom to make Jesus known is really what he's saying. And he says in the end, for why is my freedom being judged by another's conscience? I think he's referring back to the first verses again. There were, there were obviously those in Corinth, believers now. This is most likely talking about other believers rather than the person at the meal because they wouldn't be judging you because they've served the food or they're enjoying the food. Verse 29, why is my freedom being judged by another's conscience? If I take part, and Paul says I, do you notice he's moved to I? Why is my freedom, Paul does this, Paul is happy to eat the food in the marketplace. Why is my freedom being judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? So on the one hand, there were those in Corinth who were going to the temple of Aphrodite and temple prostitutes and, and, and whatever else. They were wrong. But equally, there were those who were very judgmental. And Paul saying, no, no, no. We don't take part in idolatry. But equally, we can be gracious and loving with one another, where there is room for difference, which, which there is here. Do you see the difference? You can't take part in sin. If something's a sin issue, you don't do it. But where there's a little bit more, you know, give and take, we need to be gracious with one another. Paul was quite clear that it was okay to eat the meat from the marketplace. He didn't want the Corinthians judging each other for it. So, we come to the end of meat sacrificed by idols. And Paul helps a preacher out here because he gives the three points of application which I pretty much just need to read to you. So chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, this is Paul's application from the whole thing. We've been studying this for a few weeks. What are we to take away? What are we to do? This is it. This is the whole three chapters summed up, three points of application. First of all, verse 31. Whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. What Paul's saying is, if you can do something and you can know in your heart you can do it for God's glory. Great. If you can't, don't do it. You children, as you grow up, you'll be, there'll be temptations to get involved in all sorts of things. If you can say, I'm doing this for God's glory. This is going to bring God glory. It's probably okay. If you're thinking, this is never going to bring God glory. This is, this is bad. This is going to look bad. Don't do it. What, what, do you know what the glory of God is? It's one of those phrases sometimes it's, it's hard to, to picture. If you want to know what brings God glory, answer me this question. Who 
is the person who most brought God glory. Who most brought God glory in all of history? Karen? Jesus. In Hebrews, Jesus is described as the radiance, that's like the shining out from a torch, the radiance of, the gods, of God's glory and the exact representation or copy, if you like, of God's being. So Jesus brings God's glory because he's just like God. He's just like his father. When people saw Jesus, they saw what God's like. We bring God glory when people see in us what God is like. That's how Jesus brought God glory. He came to show us. Before that, they'd had prophecies and different things. And they, they could see a bit of what God was like. And they knew what Jesus, he was coming to save them and so on. But they hadn't seen him. They didn't have the gospels recording his life. But, but Jesus came. Jesus was the glory of God. The radiance of, of, of God's glory, Hebrew says. Jesus came to show us what God is truly like. And if we bring glory to God, that means the way we live is showing people what Jesus is like, what the Father's like. Do you see that? If you do something that brings people near and shows them something of Jesus in you, that thing you're doing is bringing God glory. If you do something and it turns people off, it doesn't really show them Jesus. It's not bringing God glory. Are you showing Jesus by how you live? When you make a choice, should I do this or not? Which one is going to help people to see Jesus? And he says again, verse 32, do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God. Don't cause anyone to stumble. That's the second point of application. Don't do anything that's going to get in someone else's way as they try and learn about Jesus. Not Jews, not Greeks, not the church. Don't do anything that could put people off or that could make people sad in, in coming to Jesus. Live in a way that helps people come to Jesus. Think about what's going to bring people to Jesus. And Paul says he does it, look at the end of the verse, so that they may be saved. So do it for God's glory. Do it in a way that shows who God is, point one. Point two, do it so that they may be saved, so that they can find out how to be saved in Jesus. And finally, Paul's application of what we've been learning is this. Follow my example, and he gave up all his rights and freedoms. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. If you want to know how to live, do what Jesus would do. What did Jesus do? He laid down his life to save his people, to make us holy.